Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Decouple Podcast, where we explore the science and technologies that can decouple human well-being from its ecological impacts, and the politics that can make decoupling possible. In last week's episode, The Death of Neoliberal Eco-Modernism, with guest Jonathan Simmons, we looked at how effective responses to crises like climate change need to be planned and coordinated by government. Today on the show, we're going to be looking at how politics, confidence in science, and attitudes towards surveillance technology have led to very different outcomes between the East and the West when it comes to COVID. Many Asian countries have achieved containment of the virus, while the West remains caught in a quagmire with no end in sight. What explains these differences? Cultural attitudes? Neoliberalism versus state capitalism? Distrust of elites and institutions? Join us as we unpack the complexities and learn the lessons of our COVID successes and failures. Today on the show, I'm joined by Nils Gilman, who is the Vice President of Programs at the Berggruen Institute. He leads the Institute's research program, directs its resident fellowship, and is also the deputy editor of Noema magazine. Nils, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Chris. So I recently came across your article in Noema magazine called The Long Shadow of the Future, and it's taking a look at country-level responses uh, to COVID. Before we get into that article, though, can you tell me a little bit about how things are going in uh, L.A. and in California? With respect to COVID? Well, yeah, yeah. Yeah, things are reopening. You know, California was one of the earliest states to go into lockdown. Northern California first, um, a little bit about a week before uh, Southern California did. Um, and one of the things that I think we've really seen uh, in the U.S. in particular is being early to locking down uh, has been really decisive for how bad the outbreaks have been. So Northern California, even though it had cases earlier, locked down a week before Southern California and Northern California has had a significantly better than Southern California. Uh, you know, cases, things are opening back up steadily. Uh, just yesterday, um, the governor did mandate that uh, anybody who's on the street has to wear a face mask. I have seen mostly people out there wearing face masks. Um, I don't know whether it's going to become universal with this new order, but I hope it does because it does seem to be a major factor for slowing the transmissions. Is that when they're outdoors or, or when they go into indoor spaces like uh, restaurants and grocery stores and such, or just anytime you're outside of the house? Anywhere, anywhere outside your own house, you're, you're now mandated to be wearing a, a face mask. Wow. I'm not sure if it's original, but um, I came up with a Twitter slogan today that I thought would be pretty digestible and intelligible by the general public. And that was no shoes, no shirt, no mask, no service. Yeah, <laughs> I thought that had a good ring to it. And I mean, I, I'm, I'll be very curious to see how uh, anyway, in Western jurisdictions, when these you know mask policies go into effect, how they'll be enforced and how that will be respected. <laughs> What's your take on that in the uh, in the US of A? Well, uh, you know, obviously there's a lot of, it's become a uh, yet another front in the culture war, um, or at least, you know, certainly the president has tried to treat it that way. And some parts of right-wing media have tried to treat it that way. But I think, you know, it's, it, it's, it's an emerging norm, it seems to me, that people are really, you know, committed to wearing masks in public as part of the conditions of being op able to open back up. Yeah, I mean, for those who want to have an early opening happening, I think it's a, a really vital tool to uh, to make sure that we don't go into a second lockdown. It seems like it would just be common sense for the people who are most eager for things to reopen that they would make these small little sacrifices. But I guess that's a, a big difference between the East and the West that we'll get into. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, one way I've been thinking about this is that 
you know, we, there's three different value systems that people want to respect in the context of the current pandemic. One value system, obviously, is protecting human life, protecting public health. Another one is trying to minimize the economic damage, keep the, keep the country open, keep the economy keep the economy open. And the third one is medical privacy. And this is a classic example of what some people call a trilemma. You can have two out of these three things, and, but you can't have more than two. Uh, so if you look at what the compromises some countries have made is they have compromised medical privacy in order to be able to both have uh, public health protection and have an open economy. That's what's happened in, for example, in Taiwan, in South Korea, in China, any place that has a really rigorous testing, tracking, and, uh, and, and quarantining system is basically sacrificing medical privacy, right? Um, you're, you're basically potentially being put in a position where you can be put under house arrest just because you happen to you know, be in the same room with somebody who themselves were infected and, and so on and so forth. And so that's obviously involves a level of below the skin surveillance and you know, biometric tracking that a lot of countries in the West uh, are pretty leery about being able to put up with. But if you take medical privacy off the table, then you're really left with a, a, a stark bilateral choice between whether you want to have an open economy or whether you want to protect public health. And, uh, and, and that you know, leads to some very unpleasant choices. I think as a clinician, it's interesting to me because when we typically talk about medical privacy, usually it's on a very individual basis and not so much on this kind of metadata level, you know, where you don't want people to know that you have a certain kind of disease which might carry stigma with it. Um, so it's kind of individualized, whereas, you know, when we're talking about the kind of monitoring that's going on, I think more in East Asia through cell phones and things like that, you know, in the West, we already we offer that information up almost freely to, you know, the corporations that harvest metadata or even, I mean, I guess we don't offer it freely to the NSA, you know, as Snowden showed us, but, you know, that information is already going out there. So is it just a culture wars phenomenon that there's more of a concern about it in terms of, you know, big brother and government having access to that to try and protect us? Or is there something else at play? I do think that the big brother factor is a major one in the West. Um, I, I think that a lot of our concerns in Western countries about data privacy do stem back to images that were strongly formed during the Cold War uh, and the image of totalitarian states. Um, and, you know, there were some good reasons for that. If you look at, you know, the entities uh, that caused the most harm to human beings in the 20th century, um, you can make a pretty good case that it was really overweening governments, uh, whether, you know, you're talking about Stalin or Hitler or Mao with a great leap forward or what have you, you know, big overpowering governments that took away civil liberties from people were able to commit, you know, really terrible harms. And so there's been a, 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 an understandable desire to prevent the state from being able to have the capacity to perform those kinds of, you know, those kinds of harms. On the other hand, I don't think that's the world that we live in today. I think the world we live in today, the biggest harms we have uh, or we face have to do with the inadequacy of our governments. Um, and we're seeing that in spades with the current crisis. One of the explanations for why there's been this big retreat towards small government and the attack on government itself has been the fall of the Soviet Union and the lack of a political and economic uh, competition for, for the West and for capitalism to kind of have to work against. And so I guess since the 80s, we've just seen the stripping away of you know, many of the kind of elements of the welfare state um, and the institutions that we had that might protect us. Can you, can you go into that a little bit more? Sure. Um, I do think that the loss of an adequate left alternative 
actually existing left alternative in the last quarter of the 20th century contributed to an overall rightward shift. There's a term that's sometimes used in uh, among political scientists uh, that's known as the Overton window. The Overton window refers to the types of policies on any given topic that are within the realm of reasonable discourse. And of course, there's always people who are proposing things that are outside the realm of quote unquote reasonable discourse. But, but those people are not part, they're not taken seriously as uh, you know, credible people taking part in a policy conversation. Now, what kinds of positions are considered within the Overton window? In other words, within the realm of acceptable discourse, of course, itself shifts over time for different topics. So, uh, you know, for example, we can propose now things uh, that are now within the Overton window um, around medical privacy uh, that were not within the Overton window um, just a few months ago because people didn't have the same kinds of concerns that have been sparked by the COVID-19 epidemic. Now, in the case of economic issues, it's absolutely true that, let's say, you know, in the third quarter of the 20th century from the late 1940s through the early 1970s, um, you know, obviously, uh, Western economies were doing relatively well during those years, but the Soviet economy uh, was also doing extremely well, at least it was growing quite readily. It was not a liberal state, but the central front of the Cold War arguably was really a debate about whether you know, Soviet-style communism or Western-style capitalism was going to be a more productive kind of way of organizing society uh, for you know, growth and economic development. Um, by the late 1970s, uh, though, that pretty much had been resolved. It was pretty clear that you know, the Western economies were much more effective at producing consumer goods, at producing growth. Uh, and this, of course, leaves aside issues of civil liberties or whatever. But you know, with the decline of the credibility of a socialist alternative, what it did was is it moved the entire Overton window to the right. So a whole bunch of things which had been considered within the realm of possibility on the left no longer seemed viable at all because socialism didn't seem to be a credible alternative anymore. And at the same time, a whole bunch of things opened up on the right side of the Overton window, which previously had been excluded and now became possible to consider. So the result was that many governmental functions, which had been considered basic things that governments should provide, were increasingly outsourced, uh, privatized, or just done away with altogether. And, uh, and so the entire you know, debate over how our society should be organized on an economic basis moved far to the right. Uh, in the in the last quarter of the 20th century, that's that's the process that people sometimes refer to as neoliberalization or the the arrival of what we now call neoliberalism. And I think Francis Fukuyama, you know, famously said that we'd reached the end of history and that we were now in this model of of you know a capitalist liberal democracy. In terms of the responses between the East and the West, I mean, we have examples you mentioning like Taiwan, where you know they've really responded pretty masterfully to the pandemic. Their cases are, you know, in the several hundreds and deaths in the single digits. Have they been following a different path in the last 30, 40 years? Or what's what's behind the fact that they seem to have, you know, effective government institutions that can, you know, respond so quickly and, and masterfully to the pandemic? It's a great question. I would pose three interesting points of comparison or four, let's say, case, cases. It so happens that Vietnam, Taiwan, South Korea, and the United States all had their first announced case of COVID-19 within 24 hours of each other on January 20th and 21st. Since then, Vietnam has had zero deaths and only a couple of hundred infections. 
Taiwan has had seven deaths and less than 500 infections. Um, the South Koreans uh, have had several hundred deaths uh, and just over 10,000 infections. And the United States, of course, has had, uh, as of today, uh, about 120,000 deaths and uh, several million infections. Uh, so, you know, the numbers, these are like orders of magnitude differences in, 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 in outcome. Um, and the question is why? Um, one thing that's very clear is that uh, governmental response has been absolutely essential to the difference between the, uh, the, the results in the different countries. I mean, the country that has done best of those three is the poorest, the one with the most rudimentary public health system, the most rudimentary um, medical care system, namely Vietnam, the one that has supposedly uh, was the best prepared for pandemics and has, certainly has the most extensive um, medical system in terms of expenditure, the United States has done by far the worst. So I don't think it's as simple as saying, oh, well, it's just a matter of you know, how many resources you put into this. It's really about a certain kind of governmental competence in the face of this decision. You look at the decisions that were made in particular in Vietnam and, and Taiwan, and these are countries that border uh, directly against China, have extremely intense economic interactions with China. In the case of Taiwan, before the pandemic, there were a thousand flights a week uh, going between different Chinese cities and, and Taiwan. So these are places that are very closely coupled with one another. But what these countries did was uh, both Vietnam and uh, South Korea and Taiwan, uh, as soon as they found out that there was this really bad outbreak in, um, in China, they immediately started cutting off travel to China, between China and their countries. Um, they immediately put in place uh, a protocol for uh, assessing whether people coming in uh, on, on planes from out of the country uh, were potentially infected. They would then quarantine and isolate them. Um, they immediately transformed their um, medical system uh, from being patient-based care to community-based care, which allowed them to you know, do the kinds of testing, tracing, and isolation that's required in order to limit the spread of the disease. Now, why were they able to do that is the next question. Um, all of those things are things that the United States might have been able to do in principle, but didn't. Um, and I think if you look at the history of why that is, uh, it's a pretty interesting story. One major reason is a particular historical fact, uh, which is that when the SARS epidemic hit, in 2003, all three of those countries were pretty badly affected really quickly. And you'll remember that the SARS virus was much more lethal than the novel coronavirus uh, has been. Yeah, we, we remember that well in uh, in Canada, particularly in Toronto. Um, you know, as the SARS-CoV-2 has hit us recently, I've, you know, I've had colleagues um, who have been kind of tearful, even just thinking back to it. And, and, you know, especially at the beginning, we didn't know too much about what to expect. You know, a friend of mine mentioned a, a critical care intubation where there were six providers in the room putting them on life support. Every single provider got sick and one of them died. So it's it's left a scar on us for sure. It sounds like it did something similar in Taiwan. Yeah, well, for sure. Um, you know, Taiwan had a really pretty bad outbreak when, when it took place. Um, and it really, you know, put the fear of the Lord, I think, into, into the public health officials in Taiwan. And so they very much responded to that by instituting a pretty incredible set of innovations. Um, and I know more about the Taiwanese case than the, um, than the Korean and, and Vietnamese case, but I gather it's a similar story in those places. So one of the things they did was um, they now run, uh, and they have for the last you know, dozen years or so, they run, I think, every other year um, an all-of-medical 
system uh, simulation of a potential new respiratory outbreak. I mean, obviously they didn't know that it was going to be a novel coronavirus, but they basically were simulating something like uh, SARS 2.0. Um, and, you know, a, a, an outbreak like that happens and you have to get all the hospitals in the country to coordinate their activities. You need to change supply chains so that um, PPE can be controlled so that, you know, ventilators will be distributed properly and allocated to the uh, hospitals that need them most. There's a whole bunch of things that have to be changed in order to have an effective response. And they practice it every two years. They practice having the whole system uh, make this kind of response. And then they rate every hospital, like they rank them. How well did they do? And the ones that do well get prizes and the ones that do worse uh, are held to account. And so it's very much of a commitment to actually maintaining the expertise. Um, the second thing is, and this is, again, a very serious point of contrast to the United States, is the medical systems in these countries are not run on a for-profit basis. If you're running a for-profit medical um, uh, business, as, as, is, as happens in the United States, now, of course, there's lots of nonprofits as well, um, but uh, you know, the U.S. has a famously fragmented and fractious uh, medical delivery system um, and medical insurance system uh, that doesn't cover lots of people, that doesn't provide you know, basic primary care to lots of people. But one of the other things it doesn't, it doesn't do is it doesn't provide any incentive for hospitals to maintain you know, spare capacity. If you're being constantly judged by your profit basis in the marketplace, then you, what you want to do is you want to be as efficient as possible. And unfortunately, efficiency is at odds with effectiveness for uh, low probability but high impact events like the outbreak of a novel disease. It's, it's very interesting because obviously one institution that um, is very well funded in the U.S. Um, and that is constantly wargaming and, and preparing itself for, you know, uh, unusual eventualities is the military. Um, and I mean, Canada, to a, to a lesser extent, you know, like in terms of OECD spending on social services, you know, Canada actually doesn't do that well compared to the rest of the bunch. I think we just look good in comparison to, uh, to you guys down below the border. But, you know, when our system was overwhelmed, particularly in our, our nursing homes, 14 of which just in my province um, have had more than one quarter of their residents die. Like, it's just extraordinary thinking about these institutions losing a quarter of their residents. Um, but the military was actually called in to fill a gap because, you know, so many of the uh, workers were sick and these places were run on such a kind of lean margin. Um, but there really wasn't any reserve capacity to, to help ca care for the elderly. Has the, has the military in the U.S. been used in this role at all? Or are they too busy being used to back up the police and the Black Lives Matter uh, protests? Well, it's interesting that you bring up the military. The military is arguably the only really properly funded institution in American public life. But the things that it's been optimized for are primarily, you know, overseas war fighting and policing operations, not these kinds of these kinds of medical interventions. Military often is called in, uh, the National Guard in particular, when there is a natural disaster of some sort. But the problem here has really been a matter of, you know, basic preparedness. It's not been a matter of needing more bodies on hand. But it is an interesting question. I mean, could we have used the military and the National Guard to really quickly implement a test, trace, and isolate protocol in the United States? Well, maybe we could have, but it, I mean, it just was never, never came up for debate. I mean, the whole idea of the lockdown was that it was supposed to buy time for those kinds of protocols to be put into place. But in fact, we went into lockdown and then we didn't use the time during lockdown to implement these things. The truth is that the United States has known 
since the middle of January that this was coming and, you know, collectively just didn't get their act together to implement a program that would have allowed the economy to stay open. Why do you think it is that, um, you know, countries in East Asia, for instance, had a very ambitious goal of achieving containment of the virus? And largely in the West, um, we've seen more of a bias towards the idea of herd immunity and just flattening the curve enough that we don't fill up every single ICU bed. What do you think is behind that that difference in policy? Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, I think that the difference... There's been a fundamental difference in ambition. I think you're you're putting your finger on something really important. I don't think any countries in the West have attempted to fully eradicate the disease and are just trying to slow it down so that the ICUs don't get overwhelmed, as you say. And, you know, I think it's partly because in the West, we hope that there's going to be a technological fix, you know, that there'll be, in other words, a vaccine that will emerge, at which point, you know, we will be able to just all take a shot or a pill or whatever it is, and that, that we'll all be protected. Uh, the, the, the belief in technological fixes runs extremely deep in the West. Uh, so that's one factor. I do also think that there is a you know, fundamentally different attitude towards governmental authority in, in different countries. You know, in places that have a more libertarian culture, uh, the United States is probably you know, at the most extreme edge of that, but it's not the only one. Uh, you see other places, whether it's uh, Switzerland, uh, Britain to a certain extent, where more to the point, there's a suspicion of government, right? You end up with this kind of a vicious circle where people don't uh, trust the government. Therefore, they don't do what the government says. Therefore, the government's responses are ineffective. Therefore, people trust the government less and the vicious cycle ensues. In other countries where there's more trust in government, the government therefore can be more effective because people do what the government says. And then when the government is effective, people trust the government more. So you end up with a virtuous cycle. Now, why we ended up with these virtuous cycles in some countries and vicious cycles in others is an interesting historical question. It has to do, I, I think, with a lot of you know, local politics in many cases, right? I will note that you know, there have been two countries that are often considered Western that have actually been successful in containing and eradicating the virus in their country, and that would be Australia and New Zealand, you know, Commonwealth countries. Uh, they you know, often are seen as having similar liberal values. I think in their case, they were able to do it partly because these are very remote places. Um, you know, they don't, they saw what was happening. The outbreak began during their summer season. I think that may have been a pretty helpful and decisive factor. So they were able to plan and put into place quarantining and travel restrictions uh, before the virus was really able to take off in their jurisdictions. And now they've really severely limited the uh, amount of uh, travel in and out. I think there's quarantine measures for people coming in and out of the country from both of those places. Um, and uh, and that's meant that they've been able to be successful in eradicating uh, the disease there, at least for now as well. You know, I'm struck by, you know, we've been talking a little bit about the differences just in the capacities of states, but also we talked a bit about culture wars and the sort of different framings that that societies have, you know, in the you know the West, particularly the U.S., being very libertarian, and then you know Eastern countries being based a little bit more in uh, you know cooperative Confucianism. To what degree are those those kind of philosophical um, backgrounds shaping responses? I mean, it's always hard to know, right? Because it's uh, it's these are uncontrolled experiments, uh, but it is striking that you know Confucian countries are countries with a Confucian background where, you know, let, let's be specific. I mean, what Confucian attitudes towards authority do is they suppose that a harmonious society emerges 
because everybody in a society understands their hierarchical relationship to every other person and institution in society. And that hierarchical relationship imposes obligations, mutual obligations on both sides. So, you know, the emperor and the people are in a hierarchical relationship. And the emperor has to keep the people safe and the people have to obey the emperor. The same thing goes for teachers and students and husbands and wives and fathers and sons, you know, and so on and so forth. And so everything in these societies from, for, you know, for thousands of years has been based on an understanding of these kinds of uh, responsibilities that emerge out of the hierarchical relationships in the society. This is really deep cultural substrate, and that probably goes at least some of the way towards explaining why uh, you know, governmental authority is respected more in, in some countries in the East than it is in the West. You know, the West has, uh, you know, there's, there's a variety of different political traditions in the West, but, you know, if you, you brought up Fukuyama earlier talking about liberalism, you know, liberalism is a dominant political tradition in the West and particularly in the, you know, the Anglophone world. And there it's, uh, you know, it's really about limiting government and that liberty and a harmonious society emerges from everybody respecting limits and behaving uh, with, a, with a posture of tolerance towards one another. That's the way in which you will get uh, a, a well-operating society. Now, there's lots of exceptions to this. I, I, don't, I, I tend not to love these kinds of broad cultural examples, right? And I'll just give you one example of why we shouldn't take these things too seriously, these cultural explanations too seriously. You know, one of the most striking divergences in the outcome in response to the novel coronavirus has been in the Nordic countries, uh, you know, Denmark, Sweden, Norway, Finland. Denmark, Sweden, and Norway in particular are often seen as being very similar countries uh, in terms of their political histories, uh, in terms of the kind of welfare state they built uh, with, you know, cradle to grave protections, uh, high levels of social provisioning, education, healthcare, unemployment insurance, and so on, um, similar kinds of uh, industrial uh, development models. And so it's very interesting to note that just how different the responses have been uh, and the effectiveness of the responses have been. Sweden has ended up with one of the most disastrous responses, at least if you measure it by body count. Um, you know, I think it's uh, they've had something like, you know, 500 deaths per, per million population uh, compared to Denmark, which has had about, uh, a, you know, a 50 uh, or so. And, and, and Norway, which has had just a handful of deaths. And so even though you have three countries that, um, you know, have very similar levels of economic development and wealth, very similar kinds of healthcare systems, um, very similar political backgrounds, uh, they ended up with really different outcomes. And they ended up with different outcomes because the political leaders made fundamentally different choices at the outset of the, uh, of the epidemic in their countries. And so I, I think that more than these deep cultural factors, the competence of the governments in question at the time is the decisive factor in determining why some countries have done better and some countries have done worse. Although you're saying like each of those states have sort of similar levels of, of investment in their public health infrastructure. So in those cases, it really seems like it was, you know, the choice of ideas um, that determined the response with this, the Swedes very famously saying that they were going to pursue, you know, a very lax herd immunity approach and the rest of those Nordic countries taking on, I guess, a much more cautious approach in terms of trying to flatten the curve and lock down. Um, is, is there any reason, you know, I, I think most of your article, you really emphasize that, that, you know, operative capacity is something that we need to really be more conscious of and, and um, strive towards, whereas ideas are kind of cheap. But I, I think in that, that scenario, it's, it's 
almost the opposite, given that the operative capacities of, of these, these states are very similar, no? Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. What I would say is that uh, you have to have the operative capacity. Otherwise, no matter what your ideas are, uh, you're not going to be able to execute them. But even if you have the operative capacity, and I think if Sweden, Sweden certainly did have the operative capacity to be able to you know, really seriously limit infections and bend the curve uh, much more effectively than it did, and then it ended up making catastrophically bad choices. Just because you have operational capacity doesn't mean, uh, doesn't guarantee that you're going to use it in an intelligent way. Uh, so it's not, uh, this is not an either or situation. But in the case of the United States, I'm not sure that the operational capacity was there so that even if there'd been a commitment at the top level of government uh, to making a difference, which there wasn't, but even if there had been, I'm not sure that Trump would have been able to do it because our, you know, our systems are so fragmented. We have this highly federalized uh, approach to managing health uh, care. We have not just 50 different jurisdictions, but literally thousands of different healthcare and public health jurisdictions. It's very hard to centralize those things. And we just don't have the operational capacity to do that in the United States, no matter what ideas we may have about what we would like to be doing. So I'm, I'm really struck by, you know, the degree to which, you know, there's certainly a preventable aspect of, of getting to the need for these, um, you know, high, highly technological responses like ICU beds and ventilators and things like that. Um, and that really, as we were saying before, has to do with, you know, good ideas, good operative capacity, uh, good governance. Are, are you aware coming out of, you know, the East Asian experience where there's maybe been a bit more comfort with using things like smartphone apps uh, of preventative medicine techno fixes or public health techno fixes in the form of this kind of surveillance technology? Through your look at Taiwan, did you come across much in that regard? Yeah. So Taiwan, I mean, Taiwan, let's talk a little bit specifically about Taiwan. Taiwan's got had a really interesting trajectory. And so first of all, you know, they've had only seven deaths and only a few hundred, I think less than 500 infections, um, almost all of which have been, you know, Taiwanese who got infected overseas and, and came and brought it back. And there's been very little uh, community transmission in Taiwan, because partly because, as I said, they swung into action really early on. Uh, one of the reasons, ironically, why they swung into action really early on is because they're not part of the WHO and they don't trust the Chinese at all. So as soon as they got wind that something was going on, they put their plans into place really quickly. The second factor, as I also discussed earlier, was the fact that they've been practicing year after year. The third factor um, is that people trust their government. Um, and, the fourth, and the fourth factor is that there's a lot of expertise in the government. I mean, the vice president himself is an epidemiologist. Um, so, uh, so there's actually, you know, very serious um, capacity within the, Chinese, uh, within the Taiwanese government for doing this. But there's another factor that I want to bring in, which I think is really, really important, which is that, you know, Taiwan is a very vibrant democracy. And one of the reasons, one of the ways in which they've managed to reinforce uh, public trust in the government is by being very, very transparent. So they have a, a digital minister, Audrey Tang, who's a very impressive person, who's been doing all sorts of things to open up the government. The president, uh, when she has been doing uh, briefings. She, does, she was doing twice a day briefings when uh, the pandemic risk was at its height, uh, has been uh, also opening up all the cabinet meetings so that they can be live streamed so that there's total transparency. They've also done things which might be a little bit more iffy from the point of view of Westerners. They have what they call a, uh, I believe it's called a meme policing team, which is constantly monitoring the Taiwanese internet to see if misinformation or disinformation is being put out there and immediately issuing correctives to this. And in fact, there's been some threats for people who are putting out 
intentional disinformation of jail time if they continue to do that. That obviously seems very much at odds with our traditions of free speech here. But on the other hand, if somebody's spreading, you know, you could argue that spreading disinformation about the uh, about pandemic risk and what to do about it could be construed as being similar to yelling fire in a crowded theater, which is the famous limit that the Supreme Court of the United States once put about uh, on, on what kind of uh, speech can be uh, can be limited. Um, but the Taiwanese have been also, as you finally mentioned, very intent on using digital tracking technologies. So everybody now has an app on their phone that is tracking where they are using their positioning systems in their phones. And if you come across somebody who has an infection, they will immediately know that your phone was near their phone and they will therefore tell you that you need to quarantine yourself. And then they track your phone to see if your phone is leaving your house. And if your phone leaves, the, leaves your house, uh, they, send somebody to your, they send somebody to go find you within 10 minutes. Or if you turn off your phone, somebody turns up at your house within 10 minutes to say, to check that you didn't just turn it off so you could go out with your phone. So there's very intrusive uh, levels of uh, you know, digital surveillance in order to be able to do the isolation piece of the test trace and isolate uh, in order to keep the um, disease from spreading within the community. Now, look. Yeah, I think from Western. I think that, Sorry, go on. Go yeah, on. From Western perspectives, that that can sound very big brotherish, very scary. But the reason why the Taiwanese are willing to put up with that is because the government and Audrey Tang, their their digital minister, has been very clear. This is something we're only doing with respect to the you know the novel coronavirus. This is not something we're going to use for other kinds of purposes. And they've been extremely transparent about the way they're using it and about their commitment to ending this program when there's no longer the risk of pandemic threat. Yeah, it's, it seems like, um, you know, from the Canadian experience anyway, you know, the, the kind of half measures that have been taken um, have not been effective. Like with, with coronavirus, you just need to be very specific um, and thorough with how you pursue things like contact tracing and isolation. So in Canada, you know, people will get some advice on what to do and what not to do, but there's there's no real follow-up. Most recently, we've had a big outbreak amongst our foreign migrant workers. So we bring in a lot of Mexican and Jamaican migrant workers to uh, pick vegetables um, and engage in that form of agriculture in Southern Ontario. They were quarantined for two weeks at a, at a hotel and then moved into incredibly cramped bunkhouses on the farms. And, you know, hundreds have become ill and we've had several deaths. Uh, but this was, you know, predicated on, okay, well, we'll put people in these hotels for two weeks. And it completely ignored the motivation of the workers to try and get out of the hotel after the two weeks and not admit to mild symptoms because they need to go make some money to send back to get their kids through school. So there's just been, a, you know, a lack of thoroughness in terms of how things have been pursued. You know, the policy of a, of a two-week quarantine certainly makes sense. But if you're not thinking through some of the implications and the psychology of, you know, how people are going to respond to that and coming up with, with smart ways to engage with that and be, uh, I'm not sure what the right word is, but be sort of very perfectionist about it, then, you know, the virus is not going to respect that. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's no question. This is something where a 50% measure or a 90% measure or even a 99% measure is just not good enough. Your story about the migrant workers is, is interesting. And it reminds me of, uh, you know, another, another story uh, of another country we haven't mentioned yet, which is Singapore. You know, initially, when people were talking about which uh, countries had had particularly successful containment efforts, um, Taiwan was an early poster child for that um, and continues to be. Singapore was as well, uh, but they've had a couple of really nasty second waves. And these things have been concentrated quite precisely in, in the migrant worker 
high rise, you know, uh, con I'm not sure exactly what the conditions are there, but definitely a situation where there's a lot of workers cramped into small apartments, you know, who are the construction workers and the manual laborers in, in, in Singapore. And, you know, these, a lot of these folks are coming in um, from South Asia and, uh, and, and bringing, in, bringing in the disease. And they've not been as successful in maintaining, uh, maintaining um, uh, or preventing the spread of community, you know, of community uh, spread of the disease. Uh, and it's partly because they just, you know, they literally, these aren't even second class citizens. These aren't citizens and they just don't get the same level of care. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, in one of these farms, something like 80% of the workforce was infected. So it just gives you a sense of what the housing conditions are like and, you know, how little regulation there has been of that sector in terms of any kind of inspections. I um, mean, hopefully it'll give, <laughs> I'm not hugely optimistic in this, but hopefully it will lead to some kind of a response where, you know, Western governments will decide that there is a real role for beefing up some of our regulations and some of our, our service provisions. Would you say you're an optimist about this? Or do you think that there's going to be a wave of economic austerity put in place to, to sort of deal with deficit spending that's occurred? I think there's going to be a big push for stimulus of one sort or another. Um, and I think different countries are going to handle this very differently. Um, obviously, everybody knows that you know, the United States is going to be having a big, important election, election in just four and a half months. Um, and the outcome of that election, I think, will drive a lot of, of decisions um, that happen. Uh, we don't know if there's going to be a second wave. Um, you know, we don't know how much seasonality there is to this. But if there's a lot of seasonality, then it may be the flattening we've seen this summer is, is actually a very bad omen for what will happen when the flu, cold, and coronavirus season um, returns uh, in the fall. We could see an enormous new spike, and that would require, again, shutdowns. Um, I think we're going to need stimulus of one sort or another more than austerity. Uh, but as we know from the financial crisis 10 years ago, different countries have taken very different approaches to that. Um, and a lot of it, you know, has to do with, uh, you know, partisan, um, partisan wrangling. Um, I, it looks to me as if, you know, for example, in Britain, that the, the Johnson government seems quite committed to spending liberally in the face of the uh, economic downturn. Um, now, question, of course, becomes what is that going to be spent on? Is it going to be spent on improving healthcare systems? Is it going to be spent on improving operational capacity? Um, or is it just going to be giveaways to corporations? Uh, again, those things will come down to political decisions and different uh, countries are going to do that differently. I think I would be remiss if I didn't also point out that in general, as is true basically for every disease, every epidemic disease, this has not fallen on all parts of the population equally. The last time we had a disease, an epidemic disease that was uh, anything like this severe, um, would be, I would say, the HIV epidemic. Now, HIV is obviously a very different disease. It plays out over much longer periods of time. But a huge part of the way in which HIV was treated and has been treated uh, in terms of the kinds of investments that go into it have to do with the fact that it is its mode of transmission is very specific and the communities that it affected, um, particularly in the West, which were you know homosexual male homosexuals in particular in, in, in the initial parts of the uh, of the of the HIV um, epidemic, um, you know blood blood transfusions, uh, you know drug intravenous drug users. Uh, and then increasingly, members of the African American community. Um, you know, these were marginalized communities to begin with, and the fact that they were the ones who were being disproportionately affected certainly, uh, there's no question that that slowed the response of some governments, notably the Reagan administration, 
to wanting to deal with these things when it came out. Well, I think we're seeing something similar now. It turns out that COVID-19 affects some populations much more than others. Obviously, people know that it affects old people. It's a much more lethal disease in old people. Although some of the sequelae seem to be perhaps more severe than we initially anticipated when it comes to younger folks. And it's also affecting people of color and working class people more, largely because they work in jobs that make it very hard for them to socially isolate, uh, much harder than it is for knowledge workers who can sit at home and do their desk work from their own desks at home. And so again, I think the fact that different subpopulations are affected by this disease differently and differentially goes a long ways towards explaining why some governments and, uh, and some countries have you know, taken a more serious approach than others. I wanted to sort of uh, start closing off. Um, you, you write a lot about a crisis of trust in science and expertise um, and that sort of coming about as a result of our institutions breaking down. COVID is, is the crisis of the day, but, you know, behind this crisis, climate change still lurks quite large. And, and you, you've talked about the need for, you know, in order to match this, the competent institutions and, and a coordinated response. Do you feel that we're up to the task in the West of strengthening our institutions so that we might be able to manage subsequent crises like climate change in a coordinated and effective manner? Well, I have to say that the uh, overall global response to the COVID pandemic doesn't exactly raise your confidence level enormously that we're going to be able to coordinate around climate change either. Um, and climate change is a different kind of problem. It's, it's not an emergency. Um, it's an acute phenomenon that's going to be with us all of our lives and well beyond the lives of even the youngest among us. Um, it's it's, it's, a, it's a, uh, a challenge that's going to last for centuries. Um, and, and so I don't think that it should be treated as an emergency. Uh, emergencies suggest that we suspend the normal operation of things until the emergency comes to an end, right? So, you know, if a hurricane comes in or an earthquake comes in uh, to a place, that's an emergency, right? You know, it, it blows over, knocks down buildings, but then it blows out and you know it's over and you know you can go back to a certain kind of normalcy afterwards. Or there's a global financial crisis. It may last for several years, but it's not going to last forever. Climate change is not like that. Climate change is a different uh, problem altogether. So in some ways, we have more time to get our act together. On the other hand, the longer we take to get our act together around climate change, the worse are going to be the long-term consequences. But in some ways, I, th I think of it as a, as a really different kind of problem uh, than the one of an acute, sudden uh, arrival of, a, of an emergency uh, like a new novel disease such as COVID-19. Yeah, on the last podcast I did, I had uh, Jonathan Simmons on, who um, has a great book um, called uh, Eco-Modernism, um, which is, again, looking at uh, issues of technology and climate. Um, you know, a lot of people are, are pinning their hopes um, on countries like China in terms of a climate response, because due to their form of government, they may have the ability to uh, plan and implement um, far-reaching strategies that that might actually put a dent in emissions. Do you think we're seeing, you know, is this the kind of moment at which uh, we're starting to see the rise of China and, and the fall of, of the U.S. in terms of the the uh, these global superpowers that are, are pushing off against one another? And, and do you share that um, outlook that China maybe has a better chance of um, co uh, a coordinated and effective response to climate change? There's two parts to that question. Uh, let me take on each one. So first of all, both the United States and China have tried to make hay of uh, the COVID-19 pandemic uh, in terms of their you know, 
ever-rising geopolitical rivalry. Um, I don't think either country has actually come out looking very good in terms of its governance structures. Um, it's pretty clear that the Chinese, uh, you know, didn't bungle the initial response to the emergence of, of the novel coronavirus in, in the fall of 19. Um, they were not transparent. They were not transparent partly because it seems that, uh, you know, party officials at the regional level um, in Hubei province and in Wuhan did not want to give bad news up the chain of command. And so it wasn't until, uh, you know, late December and early January that uh, the whole country was put on alert. Um, it's pretty clear also that they were not entirely transparent with um, certainly internally about what was going on. The doctor that uh, was a whistleblower was famously detained and then he was released and then he died. And, you know, this has been an, a, a bit of a scandal inside of China, but there's been major repression of, of, of local information. Um, and then the fact that the Chinese, you know, allowed this thing to escape, partly because they weren't being transparent internally about what was going on, um, you know, that doesn't make them look good either. On the other hand, they were effective once they actually swung into action at, you know, largely containing the virus. Although there's, there's been, as you've probably seen, new outbreaks in Beijing just in the last couple of days. So they haven't fully contained, contained the virus even there. Um, so overall, I don't think China's done great. I mean, obviously, the United States has done terribly also. So I, I, wouldn't, say, I wouldn't say that either, uh, either country comes out looking particularly good. Uh, specifically on the COVID, uh, on the COVID, the handling of the COVID crisis. Now, as to the matter of whether the Chinese and the Americans are better suited for dealing with uh, the climate crisis, uh, or rather the climate change challenge, um, I've, I've changed my mind on this over time, actually. I, I go to China quite a bit. Um, and, you know, uh, I had the same experience that many people have going to China over the last uh, couple of decades, which is that the air pollution when you go to the big cities in China is just unbelievably bad. Um, I mean, it's sort of ha you have to you you do have to go there in order to believe it. Um, although it's gotten much better, actually. I mean, it's still terrible, but they've noticeably made a difference. I would say in the last five years, it's gone from being you know fubar to being merely merely snafu um, in terms of the quality of the uh, in terms of the quality of the air. And it is partly because the government's able to make very you know firm and strong interventions. And so, for example, you know, they just abolished all two-stroke motorcycles. They made everybody retire all of them, and they converted the entire fleet of motorcycles to electric, and they did that from one month to the next. And that made a difference, right? And you know, every incremental thing they do like that helps. And so the other thing that I've recently learned is that the Chinese are very seriously committed to electrifying their entire ground transportation fleet. Um, and I believe that they're actually going to be able to pull it off. Um, you know, th their goal is to have their entire ground transport fleet, buses, trucks, cars, electrified by 2030, within 10 years. California, which has, I believe, the most ambitious goal for this of any state in the United States, is aiming for 20% by 2030. Um, so the, the, the scale of the ambition is just completely different. Um, in the end, though, I don't think either the United States or China can do this by themselves. I think this is a quintessential problem where there has to be global cooperation. And one reason why I find the current burgeoning Cold War between the United States and China, while perhaps inevitable, quite dispiriting, is that we have to get the Chinese and the Americans to act together in terms of setting up standards for mitigating climate change, you know, greenhouse gas emissions. I also believe that if the United States and China can come to a bilateral agreement about what 
limiting greenhouse gas emissions should look like, the rest of the world will fall in line very quickly. Um, so I don't think it's impossible uh, in principle for that kind of an agreement to happen, although I'm quite pessimistic about it happening anytime soon, given how uh, damaged the relationship between China and the United States has become over the last seven, eight years. Okay, Nils, I think we'll have to leave it there. Otherwise, we'll end up uh, covering, you know, many, many more topics here. I'd, I'd love to keep speaking with you, but um, we'll wrap it up. Thank you so much again for coming on the Decoupled podcast. We look forward to having you, uh, you back at some point. Certainly, there's a lot of other articles you've written that have, have caught my eye. Thanks for coming on. I would love to, Chris. Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed the podcast, please make sure to subscribe, like, and review us on your podcast platform of choice. Until next time, guys.